This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Hi everyone, I'm Stephanie Gordon, Associate Editor for Top Crop Manager. In the beginning of the year, from January 7th to 8th, I headed to Ridgetown, Ontario for the Southwest Ag Conference. For those of you listening outside of Ontario, I really want to set the scene for what kind of event this is. This event is the highlight of my year, and I bet it's the same for others in Ontario too. This conference has been selling out every year I've been, and it's a pretty big deal. The Southwest Ag Conference, or SWAC, is an annual conference held at the University of Guelph Ridgetown campus by the University, OMAFRA, which is Ontario's Ministry of Agriculture, and Ontario Soil and Crop Improvement Association, alongside a host of sponsors. It is two days jam-packed with sessions. For each 50-minute block, you can choose from nine sessions. Yeah, nine. So you come in in the morning and you have nine different options to start your day. It is held at the university from nine in the morning until 5 p.m. and we move from classroom to classroom, session to session. It feels like you're going back to school. While this format may seem tiring, it isn't tiring for those attending. Every year I go, everyone is excited to be there. I spoke to one of the organizers to help me better explain what SWAC is. My name is Sarah Mervin, and I have been staff at the conference for 10 years roughly now. How would you describe this conference to someone who is not from Ontario? It's one of the biggest agricultural conferences in Ontario. We have 1,350 people roughly who attend and we have speakers from all over the world. We have them from Australia. This year we have a couple from England. They talk about pretty much anything you would want to know about ag across the world and any pertinent information that's coming in and developing that farmers need to know to keep things running smoothly. Mm -hmm. And I see a sold out sign outside when I was driving in today and it has been sold out last year when I went too. So how many years have you guys been selling out this entire event? I think we started selling out probably about three or four years ago. So we started live streaming just because of fire code and safety issues. We've outgrown our facilities. So now people who are unable to make it or people who live too far away or whatever the circumstances, especially this year, it's been a little bit wet. So I know that people are still with nice days like today out in the fields, they're harvesting. They can sit in the in on the sessions that they want to attend and we're good to go. Any memorable feedback? from the years of doing this event. You said you've been doing, this event has been going on for 27 years. Any feedback? Yes, some good, some bad, (laughs) generally. Like with any event? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that people always say is that the rooms are too hot. There's nothing we can do about that. But also some of the things that people say are that they get a lot of different information from around the world, things that they hadn't considered. And because the information that they're receiving is so current and up to date, and really following trends in agriculture, it helps them to be better at their job, enabling us to then hold conferences like this and continue to do what we do. So it's really a a give and take situation. 
Yeah. And even if the rooms are can be hot or whatever, they're always completely full. And I think that's the testament to the event is people come here to learn. And it doesn't matter if it's a classroom style or in an auditorium. I think people are always so engaged, like you said, with the content because it's current and it's relevant. And it's just an overall really good event. So thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed the conference. In the lounge, I was talking with Ed Usit. He was a speaker who came down from Twin Cities, Minnesota, who presented at the conference on five mistakes of grain marketing. He shared with me that, you know, when he was coming, crossing the border, the border patrol officer asked all the usual questions. Where are you going? How long are you staying? And he told them he was going to the Southwest Ag Conference. But the officer didn't know what that was. You know, what's that? It's an agricultural conference. You know, eventually, long story short, he crossed the border and made it to SWAC. But when sharing the story, something he said really stuck out to me. He said, there are over a thousand people here, but a million more who don't even know that it's happening. And that's how I can describe SWAC. It is the highlight of the year for some of us, but most people don't even know what's happening. Hello, Brian. Oh, how are you? So for the rest of the podcast, I'm going to share three sessions that stood out for me. So for the first session, let's talk about corn. Ontario producers dealt with a wet spring that delayed corn planting. So I spoke with Ben Rosser, corn specialist with Omafra, and uh, did a presentation on talking about uh, heat unit reductions for late planting in corn and some lessons learned in, uh, in the late year of 2019. Okay, so 2019, talk to me about what type of season it was. And why is late planted corn a topic of your presentation? Yeah, so obviously it was a frustrating year to be a corn grower. Uh, you know, we had frequent rainfalls, not good drying conditions between rainfalls. And uh, as a result, you know, we had a lot of corn that was planted a lot later than what most growers would typically want to plant corn. Uh, so, you know, into the middle, late May, and in some cases as far as, you know, mid to even late June for some growers. So obviously a frustration and uh, you know it takes some careful consideration in regards to what hybrids you're going to grow if you're pushed to that late in the season. Okay, so what were some of the frequently asked questions that growers had asked you um, this season? So I think one of the biggest ones is just when do I start to switch hybrid maturity and, and start to shorten up heat units? And then once we do, how much do we decrease heat units? So what were things that you had saw from the growers that you had worked with? You mentioned a couple case studies. Do you mind sharing one? Yeah, so, uh, so, you know, there were some growers that weren't able to plant corn uh, well into June. In some cases, you know, past the crop insurance deadline. So all of a sudden it becomes pretty risky to grow corn because you're not necessarily covered anymore. Uh, so there are questions where when you're delayed that much, what, uh, what heat unit of hybrid do you target? And, uh, you know, what's the probability of, uh, you know, getting as close as you can to maturity of that hybrid? And so for the growers that did drop heat units and planted late, mid-June, anything, what did their season look like? Yeah, so, you know, it still uh, still comes up like normal and it still progresses through. Now, there's some research saying that when you take a hybrid and you plant later in the season, that exact same hybrid, there's some ability to shorten things up a bit. It'll go through phases faster uh, than a uh, normal hybrid, say, planted on May 1st, if you plant it, uh, that same hybrid on June, uh, June 1st. But they can only shorten things up so much um, that at some point you really do have to change the, the heat units of that hybrid. But other than that, you know, things progress normally. But of course, the big question is, how far along am I going to get to maturity before the fall comes? And so did the people who planted in mid-June, did their corn reach maturity by October? 
Yeah, so that's one thing we wanted to look at. <clears throat> and it really depended on the grower and, and how aggressive they were with heat, reducing heat units of their hybrids. Uh, so we have a general recommendation that, you know, if you're over 3,200 heat units, that you would start switching June 1st and then every week take back 100 heat units uh, per week. But, you know, generally we only would only use those for maybe a week or two after that. Planning into late June or even early July in some cases, you know, that's kind of outside the realm of, uh, of our experiences and using that tool. Um, so we wanted to look at some different growers who had planted different maturities and, uh, and how they ended up. And those results, I think, showed that, uh, you know, for the first couple of switches, 100 heat units is probably fine to decrease things. But once you're a couple of weeks past those switch dates, I think the switches need to be more aggressive than just 100 heat units per week because we're losing more heat units as you get later in the season. Now, Rosser didn't have his presentation with him, so he wasn't able to mention any specifics. But I was in the corn session earlier, and I took a photo of the slides, as we all do at these conferences. So I'll share one example of a grower who planted corn late. The grower is in North Kent, which is still in southwestern Ontario. So there are about 3,450 heat units in a quote-unquote normal season to play with. And they planted their corn on June 25th which is almost a month later than the recommended start switch date. So if we go by the recommendation to decrease the amount of heat units by 100 every week, the crop heat unit recommendation would have been 3,000. The grower ended up planting hybrid tailored to a little less than that, 2,950 heat units, and he planted that on June 25th. So a little under the recommendation, but a safer decision. Like Rosser was saying, despite being planted late, the corn still went through all the stages. By the end of July, the corn was at V8. By mid-August, it was at V16. And by the end of August, it was tasseling. By mid-October, which is also when frost starts to become a concern, the corn was at half milk. So by mid-October, the corn was still likely a couple weeks away from reaching maturity. But most growers would like to at least get to half milk line because there is less yield or grain quality losses at this stage compared to frost at earlier stages. Rosser also shared other examples of growers who planted earlier than June 25th and their corn was still able to reach black layer or physiological maturity by the time October rolled around. So this was good news for growers in that session to hear that corn hybrids have some flexibility when it comes to planting date. And so you talked about, you know, the flex with hybrids and the specific study. Where was that study done? Yeah, so that was some work that was done in uh, in Indiana. I think it was the late uh, late eighties or early nineties. But I, my guess is would my guess is that you know the same uh, same relationship would would probably still exist. Um, but yeah, there is an ability that if you take a hybrid planted May first, take the same group of hybrids, plant them on June first that uh, they can use fewer heat units to go through those exact same stages. So they can kind of pull things up a bit. So that may be part of the reason why we don't start dropping heat units right at the beginning of May if we're delayed um, because of the, the hybrid's ability to do this. But at some point that shrinking up only gets you so far and you do have to start reducing heat units uh, to, to get a crop hopefully to maturity by the end of the year if planning's delayed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in the audience talked about, I don't want to harvest in the muck. I don't want to harvest when, you know, there's snow on the ground or my soil is already saturated. Can you talk a bit about what those weeks look like? Yeah, so I think it depends uh, on the grower for sure. You know, especially if you've got fields that aren't well drained, they haven't been tiled, they've got a lot of wet spots. You know, not only are you concerned about high drying costs for moisture, 
uh, low test weights if your corn doesn't reach maturity prior to frost or cool temperatures um, but field conditions or you know compaction and rutting and all that thing become a, a big concern as well um, so I think there's a lot of those factors that are are driving that decision to try to reduce heat units and you know ultimately depends on the grower and their appetite for risk if you think you can dry corn cheaply because you do it yourself or you've got livestock so you've got or maybe a neighbor with livestock so you maybe got a, a high moisture corn marketing option you're less sensitive to some of that stuff maybe you're a little bit more aggressive but if drying costs are expensive for you you've got fields you really like to get on early because they get wet and hard to get on later in the season uh, then you're probably going to be a little bit more aggressive in cutting heat units back on your hybrids and this is kind of an outlier year so there isn't a lot of research for you know super late planted corn or anything like that but it could also just be that it could be an outlier year so in terms of next steps do you want to do more research on late planted corns and the flexibility with hybrids or was it just kind of a one-off yeah so certainly i think uh, it would be beneficial to have some additional research you know we've done later planting but typically our later planting is you know we get as far as early june and that's where we leave things this year absolutely it was an anomaly year but you know since uh, since i've you know been around as corn specialist for the past four years there's usually some pocket of the province somewhere that has these struggles and is planting you know well into june um, so yeah, I think it would be beneficial research to really look at the impact of heat unit selection and hybrids and yield potential um, going past the beginning of June, you know, well into the, the end of June or maybe even early July for some more data and better recommendations. So if you're a grower coming into plant 2020, what are some resources? What are th some things to keep in mind? Obviously we cannot predict the weather, but as a corn grower, what are some lessons I'm taking from 2019 that I can, that can really change what I'm doing in 2020? You always hear the saying when you have some extreme year, never farm on last year's weather. So I think you'd still want to approach, uh, you know, your hybrid selection, that sort of thing, like you normally would. Uh, I think everybody hopes we aren't going to have another 2019. But I think if you get a future year uh, where your planning is delayed this much, I think one takeaway from some of the lessons that we learned this year is that if you're, you know, delayed a couple weeks past that switch date, you probably want to be more aggressive in reducing heat units if you end up in that situation again. Hopefully we don't, but uh, I think that was one key takeaway uh, thing that we learned with some of the case studies this year. Thanks. No problem. <laughs> So my next interview was with Steve Denise, and we actually go way back. Steve was actually one of my first interviews when I started writing ag stories in journalism school, and it was a friend of mine who introduced me to him. I asked her if she knew any people I could interview for a farming story, and she was like, just ask my dad. And so here we are, three years later, and I got the chance to interview Steve again. Did you text that photo to Anna? I did. I posted it on Twitter, actually. That's funny. Um, so uh, it just has to be like here, and then I'll bring it back when okay. I'm talking. Before I launch into the official interview, I want to give some context into Steve's presentation. He presented alongside Ellen Sparry with CNM Seeds on the future of seed. That's what their session was called. Each of them spoke about pending changes to the seed industry in Canada. Steve talked more about seed synergy, which is how the seed associations will be changing. And Ellen talked more about value creation, which is how the industry can produce value you know, how to deliver better genetics and really provide more of a business case for plant breeding programs in Canada. So Steve Denise, brand director with Mazex Seeds, and uh, here this week at the Southwest Ag Conference presenting on the future of the seed industry. Uh, and I do that as, uh, as a participant in the Canadian Seed Trade Association and a past president. 
Okay. And so why the topic? Why the future of seed now? So the, the topic was introduced at this session to, to give uh, producers some background about what's happening in the seed trade. And so we've reached a point when we look at, uh, at seed production and seed industry in general where we have a number of uh, associations. So the one thing that we were talking about is, is the, the various associations involved in, in the, the whole seed value chain in Canada are working together to form one association, which we think will provide some synergies and probably, uh, you know, for, for farmers, better value as we go down the road, trying to bring innovation on a more timely basis. Okay, and tell me a bit more about the pain points of the current system. You talked about how it's a little bit confusing to know where to go to, single source, things like that. What would you say are some of the main pain points with the way it's structured now? Let's say you're a seed company, uh, a current you know, a current seed company in Canada, or let's say you're a company that's coming from another country, you've invested in genetics, you want to bring those into, into the country. Um, so, so today you've got different associations representing different aspects. So you have the Seed Growers Association, which would be involved in the, the seed, seed production, which is then uh, typically sold to a seed company. Uh, you might be, uh, you know, if you're looking for quality parameters, then you're either going to have to talk to the Canadian Seed Institute or to the Seed Analyst Association. Uh, if you're wondering about uh, trade rules uh, to work with in Canada, you're probably working with the Canadian Seed Trade Association. And so, 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 you know, what we're trying to do by working together is to bring all of those functions under the same roof. And, and then so for whether you're a current company or somebody that wants to invest in this country is that uh, you can work with one group to get the answers you need at any point uh, from breeding all the way through to when the seed is commercialized. And even in that list, there were a lot of like seed associations that I couldn't keep track of. And in your yeah. presentation, you talked about how they each do a different thing. Yeah. So in terms of consolidating, what does it mean for those associations in terms of um, how they will work in the future? Does it mean that you're cutting down you know, five associations to a staff of one? What no. does it mean for so, them? So what it likely means is that we're, we're, the functions that everybody performed will be pretty much the same. And, and those functions would only change if, let's say, the regulations change. You know, and, and in our presentation, we didn't talk about regulatory reform, but that's one of the other key topics in the next few years that we're just getting into is, is looking at the seed regulations in Canada and what we need to update those to, to, to uh, you know, foster innovation in the, in the country going forward. And so, so the functions won't necessarily change. It means that we're, we're going to work, it'll all be under the same roof, so to speak. So what it does mean, you know, where the biggest change will likely be seen is from a governance perspective. So, so there, you know, we, we would have had five executive directors before. We're probably going to have one executive director. And, and then there'll be various, you know, probably uh, functional heads, you know, for, for the various services that are provided. And then one board structure. So right now you've got five or six board of directors and uh, that are focused on the companies within that segment. Uh, and now we're going to go to one board of directors for the whole, for the whole shebang. And so those are probably the, big, the biggest changes. But from a functional perspective, the goal is not to, to decrease the service providing, but to keep it or enhance it. And uh, we think we can do that working together better. Mm -hmm. And are you using models from what other countries are doing to kind of inform future steps? So, so we've looked at what's happening in other countries. Uh, I'd say we're, we're trying to have a made in Canada solution within the industry. Um, you know, the other topic we talked about today was actually on uh, value added. And there we're looking at models in other countries. And uh, so those are like two different things. Um, and I would say we're probably looking more at other countries when we're talking about areas like that. 
So in terms of the other areas, your co-presenter talked about plant breeding, and in particular she mentioned how it takes you know, 9 to 13 years to bring a new um, variety, a variety to market. And with that, each variety is about like a $1 million investment, and that's not even taking into account the, the labor, the time, yeah. um, you know, the equipment. And so that's a, a very hefty investment. What is the value of you know, making sure that plant breeders have long-term investments instead of every year they kind of have to look for a different place to kind of get their source of funding. Yeah, so the the issue right now is if, if we look at like crops like corn or soybeans and canola, in those crops the model has changed over the years because we've had an int- introduction of either biotechnology traits or in both canola and seed corn it's, it's a hybrid model. And so their growers have to buy seed every year. Uh, and, and in those crops then, you know, there has been a uh, a return on investment on the breeding because the grower is buying the seed every year. When we look at other crops like wheat, you know, uh, would be would be one of the prime examples. You could also look at forage crops as an example, but let's say wheat or barley cereals. The issue is is that um, you know the tradition in the country is more or less that farmers will buy seed one year and then they'll save some of that seed to plant the next year. And what that has meant is that there, there's been very little come back to the breeder to invest in new varieties going forward. And the impact of that has been that, that we don't see a lot of private investment in this country. The, the, the crossover has been a lot of the breeding, if you go back into especially early part of the, of the last century, is that the government did a lot of the breeding from a public perspective, especially in, in cereal crops. Well, the government, you know, on the, on the whole is saying uh, plant breeding is not our priority. You know, we, we'd rather see private industry uh, because they've got the scale, they've got the scope, they're doing it, you know, if it's, if it's not on a regional, it's on a global basis. And, and so it doesn't make sense for the federal government to invest the same dollars because we can't, we can't uh, generate new products at the same pace necessarily. And so, so the discussion today then is in crops for cereals and that, what do we do to make sure that we're providing that return on investment so companies want to invest in Canada? And that's where we started talking about different models that could be used uh, to provide that, that breeder or the company that, that the breeder works for with a return so they can, they can invest. Because like you said it, in the summary that Ellen gave is that, is that you know, most crops are looking at 10, 12, 13 years that you're investing before you see a dime back. Mm-hmm. And you had a really good analogy about you know, loaning your tractor out to a neighbor um, as a way to kind of see the plant breeder perspective. Can you share that again? Well, sure. You know, the example I gave, because as, as a farmer, you know, we don't necessarily see, you know, what, what the total relationship is in the market. So what I said is if, if we invest in a tractor, let's say, or I invested a farmer in a tractor, and I've saved up for years, or I've, I've, you know, I've built equity up so I can buy that tractor. Well, I, then I lend it, to, which is no different than me investing in a breeding program over a five, ten-year time frame to bring a new variety to the market. Well, I introduce that, that I buy that tractor, I lend it to my neighbor. He pays me rent on it, right? Now somebody else borrows it from him, and somebody else borrows it from that grower. And so before you know it, there's a lot of growers that are using my tractor, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, been able to track it. I have, I have no uh, chance or opportunity to get a return on that investment. So now I'm out. And that's what, that's what we're facing on the, the breeding side in some of these crops like cereals is that um, you know, the investment is being made, and if we can't generate sales or revenue from the, from the use of that, then, then we're just not going to continue to invest. Mm-hmm. And what do you say to the people who are, you know, staunch advocates for, you know, saving the seed? So I say to them is that's their choice. You know, at the end of the day, it's, that, it's their choice. But as a collective in Canada, collective in terms of, of farmers, 
you know, do we want to see new varieties or not? And the reality is that in other countries, particularly in Europe or, or South America or elsewhere where they have these models in place, you know, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing investment and we're seeing new varieties brought to the, and innovation brought to the market faster than what we're seeing in Canada. So we're actually behind in crops like that. We assume, you know, I think Canadian farmers assume that we're at the head of the pack in everything. But the reality is, in, in crops like corn and soybeans and canola in particular, we are. We're, we're there on a global scale, right at the, at the leading edge. But in other crops, we are definitively behind other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen with kind of current stories, we need diversification in our markets, especially with what happened with canola earlier last year, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that's very important. In terms of like an international level, what happens if we kind of fall back on plant breeding. Is it really that catastrophic? Like, what does it mean for well, us in the what future? It, what it likely means then is, is if you look at that over time, if our plant breeding ball falls behind other countries, then growers are less likely to grow crops where there isn't advancements because the, the yield falls behind and the profitability is not there. You know, like, like I work for a seed corn and a seed soybean company. And, you know, if you're, if you're selfish to those crops, you say, I want every grower just growing those crops. The reality is it's actually very good for even for... For us, if growers have wheat in the rotation, because it, it supports, you know, not only from an environmental perspective and stewardship perspective for the land and for the, for the general environment, but even for the other crops that they're growing, it's good to have a good rotation. And so if we can see investment in crops like cereals uh, and wheat, you know, and, 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 you know, the focus of this conference was Eastern Canada, I mean, anything we can do to help the profitability in those crops for the farmer at the end of the day, it's a better situation. And actually, from an environmental stewardship perspective, it's also a better situation. Mm-hmm. And one of my final questions is, one thing that was brought up in the presentation was splitting west and east. Obviously, different crops are grown. Um, what, what do you think about that? And what is the benefit of having you know, the one seed voice, especially kind of when it was mentioned about lobbying on a federal level? Yeah, so the one seed voice would probably be on a, on a countrywide. And I think the, the efforts are in place to, to make sure that's a countrywide voice. The, the potential for different models for east and west probably relates more to, to a value capture. And there, you know, it, it goes into kind of the history and the legacy and the emotion tied to the whole issue. It's a little bit different between east and west just because of the different crop mixes, different experience with contracts, you know, in, in crops like uh, soybeans as an example. So, so at the end of the day, we'll probably see, I would say, a similar model uh, rolled out across the, the country. Um, but uh, but the, the history you know, might point to a different outcome if it was done on a regional basis. So, In terms of timeline, when can we see some of these changes start to take effect? So the, the seed synergy, which is the, the formation of one seed organization, that could come to a vote within the various associations as early as this summer of 2020. And so you would see the one organization rolled out, let's say, over the next uh, 18 months, two years. Um, and from a value capture perspective, I'd say we're... We're still uh, we're early to mid game, and I'd say we're we're probably still looking at two, three, four years, something like that, before we see. That would be my guess uh, at a final final outcome. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for chatting with me. Or not. So things good. Twenty nineteen wrapped up. Yeah. I mean, For anyone who has been to SWAC, you know who my next interviewees are. I worked a little bit with, with some of the guys in DEI, and the potato guys there, they will put four inches into the rotation just to reduce compaction. 
and I was with one guy and he said, you know, would you look out in my potato fields? I don't have any pond in the water and I don't have the compaction. The neighbors, they have water ponding there all the time. And they're wondering why I don't have my the compaction they do. Is it because of the tires? And it's because he's putting forages into that rotation. So the cynics say, well, I'm not going to make any money with the forages. What do you want to do? Do you want to reduce compaction? And how much money are you willing to put in it? And does every part of the field have a compaction? No. But certain areas that we have worse. What, what this guy does is he will plant his forages. And when it comes to time to first cut, if he can sell it, he'll cut it and sell it. If not, he cuts it, lays back down the ground. And the same with the second cut. If he can sell it, he will. If he won't, he puts it right back down. And then every once in a while, like this year, he made a fortune selling day because of the foreign shortages. Yeah, Lord help us. Thank you. If you are serious about compaction, Johnson, put the pests out and let's see which, which works best. Oh, so, so it works in potatoes because you make so stinking much money on potatoes, nothing else matters. Okay, so let's just write if you do it that way, you never harvest it and you never cut it when it's wet. But if you're a real forage producer, you're probably one of the worst compactors in the world. Because when you cut the stinking hay, the second it quits raining, right? Because you need that three or four day window to get the stinking hay out in good condition without another rain. And so, like, I don't know, forages are great. You're absolutely right. The, the forage fields. Holy Lord, I got to my head on the wall. But the forage fields are the most compacted fields because the number of times we go over there with the size of the equipment, we compact it. But the yield afterwards, because of, of what you were saying here, it is those root channels, those grass roots go down and they decay over two or three years. And that's how they are overcoming the effects of compaction. Try it, you'll like it. Production Pundits is a session where Peter Johnson. Peter Johnson, and I'm an agronomist with Real Agriculture. And Pat Lynch. My name is Patrick Lynch, and I'm a certified crop advisor. Go head-to-head -head answering questions producers submit. And another Peter, Peter Reddick, moderates that discussion. So I caught up with Pat afterward for a behind-the-scenes look into how this session even started. My background is I worked as a soils and crop advisor for the Ontario government. Then I set up a crop consulting venture with a company and then ran that for 25 years. And then I uh, left that and set up my own little crop consulting and doing these other jobs. So the production pundits, it started, I don't know, 12, 14 years ago. And it started out, there was three of us, and there was a different MC. And the idea was, okay, Johnson, you and Lynch never agree much on anything. Let's put you up in the front and have a go. And we had a third person. And after about three years, that third, you guys are so full of shit. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And then, and, and so we went through about three people that lasted two to three years. And they all said, no, I... You know, I don't want to do this with you guys. You two just do it yourself. So we we do it, and the farmers know what's coming, so they pick questions. And Peter Gredick does a great job. If there are questions there that obviously you know, a lot of people wouldn't be interested in, like 
you know, is soil optics the best way to be soil sampling? He's not going to ask those questions. So Peter sorts through the questions that would be of general interest, and they've used Twitter to get people to uh, put in questions. And so it's just the farmers or the participants here have gone through, what, eight hours almost seven, eight hours of solid sit-down presenting, and now they want a little bit of a different venue or different format, so we do this, and they really don't know what's going to come, so there's a bit of humor and comic relief, and and the people here know that when Peter and I, if a subject comes up, we both agree, well, there's no point in discussing it because that's obviously the answer, so we'll do that. And then the ones that we disagree, they can listen to Peter's point of view and my point of view, and then they can add them up and decide for themselves. You know, it's it's to the point that if we don't disagree, we don't get enough points out there. And I remember one time we were doing a similar thing, and okay, what do we talk about? So we went through a list. Now nah, we agree on that. Now nah, we agree on that. So then he's uh, one of us said, well, "What about Roundup Radius making farmers lazy because they don't?" I said, sure, that's a good topic. So I said, so which side do you want? It is making them lazy. I don't care. Let's flip a coin. We'll see who takes which side. So in some cases, you know, we could dis- debate either side of it. And then some of them, we've got our definite opinions based on our experiences and where we've come from. So speaking of experiences, do you remember the first day that you met Peter Johnson? Or how did you guys meet? Uh... I think the first time I met Peter, I had left the government and I was asked to go and talk to a soil and crop improvement meeting and he was the soil and crop advisor. So that would have been maybe 85 or 86. So he, when I was working with the government, he was working for the government in a different capacity, not in the soils and crops area, but in a, I think he was with the conservation, not the conservation, but, but with that group rather than the soils and crops. So, yeah, that was a long time ago. And did it start as a friendship, or when did you start to realize that you had differing views on, you know, these agronomic issues? When did it start? I don't know. It may have started out with with tillage, possibly, because uh, Peter was definitely promoting no-till, and I was promoting, you know, you're a farmer, if you want to go no-till, I'll work with you. If you want to use conventional work, I'm going to work with you. If you want to do strip-till, I'll work with you. I'm not going to judge and say which system is better. Where Peter's, there's no-till and there's nothing else. And and to me, I won't tell the farmers what to do, but whatever they are doing, I'll work with them to try and make it better. So there was a difference of philosophy as to, you know, should farmers be allowed to work the ground or not? And then after that we you know we just uh, he would speak to his people and I would speak to mine and we would end up having different views or opinions on the same topic. So going off of that especially questions that are submitted here at the end of the day it's does this fit my operation does this fit my farm so when you give your answers is that built in is it kind of like this is what we would go with but do what works for you? It, it is to an extent, and so the the format is we don't get to see the question, so it's got to be our gut reaction without a lot of thinking. And now some of them, because we've been around, we have thought about it, um, so we don't 
And and the other thing is, we you know only allow ourselves thirty to sixty seconds per answer, um, so we don't have enough time really to. Well, that's okay if that's a silt loam soil, but you know if you're on a clay, that's not going to work. So we try to put some of that in, knowing like we both experienced so much of Ontario agriculture, we've got an idea of of um, how great the variability is and what it is. So. Um, a bit, yeah. There is there is a bit that that some of the answers we give are definitely not applicable now. And again, Peter knows the farmers too, so he tries to sort through the questions. As you can see, there was a bunch he never did use. Sort through the questions that would have the broadest interest to all the people here. Yeah. So going off of that, do you have a favorite question? Do you have a particular type of question that you love it when they ask? Because you've been doing this for quite a while. So is there ever a question that you get where you're like, yes? Um, yeah. It, tillage questions uh, I like. I thought it would have come up, the use of organic amendments. On, it comes up some years, maybe did this year, and, and, and uh, you know, should we be putting city waste on farmland? And, and I know in southern Ontario that's come up again because a number of places are trying to put them up. So that's always a favorite one to get going. Um, Wait, so what are, your, what are your thoughts on that, yay or nay? If I want the Ontario government to take responsibility for the liability, and if they will take responsibility for the liability, yeah, I would tell the farmers, yeah, for sure, because it's such a good source of nutrients. But in with my customers say, well, you know, if there's any way that you think that stuff will ever get into the water and affect, you know, smaller municipalities down, I wouldn't do it. You know, I would be very choosy of the fields where I put on it, knowing that sometime, maybe 20 years from now, they're going to trace back that something was in the water that got into this village and affected the people and trace it back to that farmer there. You put that stuff on your land and it got into the water, you know, just like Walkerton and what happened there, and you're responsible. And if the Ontario government would step up and say, we are regulating this, we will you know, be responsible if anything happens, which we don't know if it will or not, but we'll take, we'll cover you then and say, yeah, let's go do it. <coughs> now, that's for some of the organic amendments. The other, there's other organic amendments, you know, the, the food waste and all those, those are great stuff. Manure. Oh, manure, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But there's some, <coughs> well, there's something in the air, all the speakers. There, there are some crops, like you can't put certain things on for vegetable crops. Uh, you can't put certain things on before edible beans, and I'm sure that'll be down the road. You can't put this on if you're growing IP soybeans for export to China, that there will be more restrictions down the road. And so I just want the government to say, okay, if that happens, you know, any yield or any dollar loss, we will, uh, to a certain level, you know, we will cover you. So you talked a bit about biosolids. That's kind of trendy. And there are things that kind of go in and out of fashion and farming, trends Absolutely. that happen. So over the past years, what have you noticed? Have you noticed more questions about certain things versus others over the past, like, maybe five years? Anything, any trends that you're seeing? Well, definitely tillage trends. Uh, but that's, yeah, definitely strip tillage. But that's also because we have made big improvements in the tillage equipment and planter equipment and precision planting. But again, 
um, because we have made such big strides in new planners and new planner technology. So those things. Um, <coughs> what else? Nitrogen rates on corn is always, you know, is always, it always comes up. It didn't come up here today. I guess maybe they're sick of it. Trends. No. Cover crops? Well, yeah. See, I've been promoting cover crops forever. When I left university, I was selling forage seeds, so they were using it as cover crops then. But, um, yeah, there's a big trend now towards cover crops. So it is something that I think Peter and I have you know, agreed on and promoted, and now it's taken on a life of its own, so we don't have to talk about it anymore because now it's really taken off. Yeah. Um, I guess, like, practices that have been proven, you know, diverse crop rotation, cover crops, well, things like that. Yeah, those we, yeah, those we got to uh, gotta keep promoting. Um, hmm. I don't know what other things. Is there ever a question that was asked maybe a couple of years ago that probably wouldn't be asked now, questions that have gone out of fashion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, can you give an example? <laughs> well, last year, what are we going to do about Dawn uh, in the yeah. court? I mean, never even came up this year. And uh, so this year, what are we going to do about, you know, low bush away? And high? It won't come up next year. Um, three years ago, western bean cutworm. You know, what are we going to do about western? Nobody even talks about western. So, yeah, things are. And we've gone through how are we going to be controlling white mold and soybeans. And five, six years ago, you know, the soybean aphids were such a problem. What do we miss? What are we going to do different? And we had the neonics and the neonics. And, and I, I would say that, listen, learn to get along without it. What well, we can. I said, there are things in the pipeline we don't even know about we can use. No, there's not. I said, yes, there is. And now we've got two other treatments that are not neonics that were in the pipeline. And now they're saying, well, what happens when we lose those? I said, I know that the companies have other actives in the pipeline. Well, why don't they tell us? I said, would you tell them? If you were Bayer and you've got a brand new active coming along, would you tell people? Because then Sinjit or somebody else is going to start taking a look at that same chemistry they're going to come up. I said, we underestimate how fast, you know, the technology and all that is moving. So, Halfway through the interview, Peter Johnson the other half of the production pundits had just finished talking with some attendees and Pat called him over. Nice. Did, did you want to get down to Peter? Um, yeah, if he's, is, he, yep. is he busy now? No, you're probably going to. Peter, you can correct me now. Oh, sorry, what, what are we doing? I was just asking him about the, like, the behind the scenes of production pundits, how long you guys have been doing it. I asked how he met you, things like that. Do you, if you're okay with it, I'll grab yeah, a sound bite from you. I, I can't even remember how long we've been doing no, it, to I be honest. No, I don't know, 12, 14 years. Yeah, I, don't know. I just said that we had, we went through at least three people that were with us, and they said, you guys are so full of shit, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We burned a few bridges from that perspective because yeah. we were just a little too hard on other people. and and They didn't get it. It's, no. It's I, a, you know, we're, we're having fun, and it's a mental challenge. Yeah. Like Deb Campbell, I didn't think she'd walk away from us, but she just said, you guys... I don't have to do this. <laughs> the the banter in the yeah. question yeah. Q and A. Well, yeah. and, and and so some sometimes like you, you got to you got to be able to take it as well as dish it out, and and it's not for everyone. It's absolutely no. not, and and so it's just fun. As Pat says, we come up here, we have fun. We don't always agree, 
Uh, well, and, but that's okay. And well, I was explaining, you know, if we agree, there's nothing to it. But if a major question come up and we agree, then okay, that must be right. Let's go on to the next one. So we don't spend much time on the ones and the ones we disagree. You get the two sides of it. Yeah, and and there's some there's certainly some issues where where that message like we just have to agree because it's a major environmental concern or it's a major production issue and we don't want to send people home with a mixed message on something where they obviously need to do x so we we have to agree on that you know like the neonics like that was you can't cheat you can't fill out false papers you got to follow the rules and that's a lot so we're not even going to think about how you can get around it yeah so there's certain things no that's non-negotiable Right, but so, do you actually remember the first time you had met him? I so, thought it might have been the Lambton Soil and Crop Improvement. I had left, and I was with uh, Syedema then. No, you you, had, you definitely left the the ministry. Yep. Before we met. So when did you start with the ministry? Eighty-five. Yeah, that's when I left. So I left in January. And I started in February of eighty-five. Okay. Yep. But I think I was I so that first year I was out of Cambridge. And then I went and I was lamped in Middlesex. I replaced Slyhoff. Yep. And I'm pretty sure that we met in that first year. It might have been Lampton's annual meeting or Middlesex's yeah, annual them, meeting, yeah. but I think it was it was back then. Yeah. And so of course, Pat at that point was already famous because he been in, was working but, on us infamy. Yeah, yeah. No, because he'd been in the system for a while and and written articles and was a, was a, a wealth of knowledge, well, well recognized I was in just agriculture. Just being myself and calling it the way they were, and people thought, well, that's different. You're a government guy, calling it the way it was. I remember I really got in trouble <clears throat> because we would recommend wheat varieties and oat varieties and barley varieties and that was okay because they were all coming out of the government system and then the one year I got up I was with the government said if you haven't tried Pioneer 3970 you've got to try this hybrid well the shit hit the fan and Bill Lees who was working with Asgro he sends a letter to the to Minister. my boss. Oh, just to your boss, yeah. What is going on here? Since when have the go- and Bill Leesk and I were roommates when he was working at PC. When has the government start recommending corn hybrids? And, and the government guys, they never even came to me. I said, well, why shouldn't we? We're recommending the best barley and wheat. Why shouldn't we be recommending the best corn hybrids? So well, I thought, you know, that's just logical progression. Mm-hmm. Yep. No. He was just famous long before I, because he'd been in the system. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you had the same uh, so, attitude. Right. So, so Tell I think the we, truth. right. We both have that same attitude. It's the data is the data. Talk about the data, and and that's what Pat would be doing with thirty nine seventy. It's and you just you had the data. You talk and and you didn't you didn't pull any punches. You no. told it the way it was, and not everybody loves that, but the farmers love it oh, because yeah. you're. You, I'm not getting paid by any company to no. say that their product is the best. Here's the data. Have a nice day. You don't like it? I don't care. Yeah, this is what it is. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's how you can be like one of the last sessions, but still have like a sold out. It's almost <laughs> the size of an auditorium, I was right? Surprised. I thought they would, but on the other hand, there are new topics. So, so, so the turnout at this session has always been excellent, mm-hmm. and and part of it is they're 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 really kind of almost. Overload. They are. They're and, saturated. Right. And so they come here and and they get questions get asked and, and there's some banter and the banter kind of re energizes them a little bit. It does. And and 
they can ask a question that they've heard through the day that they didn't quite understand or and, and so I think the format is just the right the right uh, end to that to that yep, absolutely overload and yep. and it works yeah and it's it been working for <clears throat> it, it a long I think time. it helps sort out some of the like you go to hookers and you just sit through 50 minutes and he runs out of time and it's all good stuff but it's like but he knew that like he knew and and the same with dale cowan they shouldn't have rent and paul sullivan i'm going to talk to him tonight he they all ran oh, out no. of time it's okay uh gene already talked to paul you oh. don't have to <laughs> anyway well, so, uh, yeah we're okay. off topic you you yes. can talk to him um, as an aside here, I did attend Dave Hooker's session, Rotation Rules, and he did end up going overtime, but they're right. It was all really good stuff, and he actually had a lot of attendees come up after and ask questions, so I wasn't able to grab a comment from him so he could defend himself. But Dave, if you're listening, you can set the record straight on if any of your other sessions went overtime whenever you have the time. But it's all just, at the end of the day, friendly banter. Oh, absolutely. No, seriously. We seriously disagree sometimes, yeah, right? Like, no. so, so it isn't that, that it's just made up banter sometimes. Yeah. Yes. But no, we, 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 are, we are trying to generate some humor and also some information for growers to think about. And absolutely. And no, we don't hate each other, even though you might sometimes think so. Yeah, that's what I was kind of going for. Yeah. So I asked Pat this question, and this is going to be my final question to you. Do you remember the, one of the first things that you guys disagreed on? Oh Lord! What was one of the first things? I I think it was actually no-till. I think Pat was dead set against no-till, and I was dead set for it. And I think that's one of the first things where we really butted heads. And that would be back in like 1987 or 88. So that goes a long way back. Yeah, and and that's exactly what he said. So it's it's funny how I asked you guys the same question, and you both said no-till. So yeah. that's very cool. Yeah. No. Yeah. Cool. No. Appreciate it. Stephanie. But yeah. Thanks. No. Thanks so much. Yeah. Good. So that was swag for you. Like I said in the beginning of this podcast, the Southwest Ag Conference is one of the highlights of my year. So I hope I was able to share some of that here in this episode. On behalf of the team at TopCrop, I would like to thank the SWAC organizers, volunteers, speakers, attendees, and everyone who helps make the Southwest Ag Conference what it is. And finally, thank you to anyone listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We have officially relaunched the Top Crop podcast on its own channel. So feel free to subscribe to Inputs by Top Crop Manager directly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us by searching Top Crop Manager on any of these platforms or heading to our website, topcropmanager.com slash podcast and finding us through there. If you have any suggestions for what you want to hear, feel free to also reach out to us. We want to know what you're interested in learning more about when it comes to field crop production in Canada. We're on Twitter at topcropmag and email at topcrop at annexbusinessmedia.com. Annex is spelled A-N-N-E-X for any of those listening. So feel free to reach out and thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.